From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The defense of the Second Amendment has gotten so hilariously and absurdly arcane, they have reached into the 17th, 17th century Bristol to try and find someone to justify the increasingly elaborate and ridiculous arguments that they're making on behalf of gun ownership. That's Malcolm Gladwell. You've likely heard of him. He's the best-selling author of a number of popular books, including The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. He's also been a staff writer at The New Yorker for almost 30 years. After decades of success with the written word, Gladwell launched the audio company Pushkin Industries in 2018. There he hosts the podcast Revisionist History, a show about things overlooked and misunderstood. The newest season is all about guns, how Americans think about them and protect them, and ultimately, what we get wrong about them. Gladwell and I get into some stories from his show in this episode. We also discuss some other Gladwellian topics. He reflects on broken windows policing, first impressions, and the quiet severity of the opioid crisis. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Karen. She writes, Peter Navarro has been found guilty, but sentencing has been scheduled for January 2024. Can you explain why sentencing takes so long? So, of course, Karen, you're referring to Peter Navarro, an ex-Trump aide, who was found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress, because when he was asked to come testify and provide documents to the January 6th committee, he basically thumbed his nose at the committee. The referral was made to the Justice Department, the Justice Department indicted, and the trial just concluded. So it's a good question. In the federal system, it is typical for sentencing to happen three to four months after conviction, either by trial verdict or by guilty plea. And you may wonder what goes on in those three months. Well, lots of things. It is, in fact, the next distinct phase of the criminal process, distinct from the charging decision, distinct from the trial and the verdict. And during that time, both the government, the prosecutors, and the defendant or defendants make their arguments to the court in a series of briefs as to what the sentence should be. And obviously the government and the defendant often disagree. So they do that briefing at the same time, the probation department in the district undertakes its own investigation of the nature of the crime, the seriousness of the crime, the elements of the crime, 
the circumstances of the defendant, and it makes its own recommendation in what's called a pre-sentence report for the court. And then there might be arguments that the defendant or the government might have about that pre-sentence report. So in any event, it goes back and forth for a little while. There also is an opportunity accorded for people who want to write in in support of the defendant and for a lenient sentence. So maybe three or four months seems like a long time, but it's a way that the court takes seriously the very difficult act to impose a sentence that is sufficient, but not more than necessary. This question comes in an email from Leanne, who writes, I enjoy your show. Thank goodness you aren't always yelling like the other side that I've tried to listen to. You may have addressed this previously, but does attorney-client privilege require that the attorney is actually getting paid for services rendered? Well, that's a good question. The short answer to your question is, no, it does not. There has to be, in fact, an attorney-client relationship, and the conversations that are covered by the attorney-client privilege have to be related to legal advice. If you and your lawyer are just shooting the breeze about sports or politics, separate from the provision of legal advice or an anticipation of a legal proceeding or litigation, that's not covered by the attorney-client privilege. So when a potential client consults with me, even before a dollar has been paid, that's covered by the attorney-client privilege in most circumstances if it's for the purpose of retaining me to provide legal counsel. Even after that, though, there's a whole category of legal practice that lawyers refer to as pro bono. That's work done without the payment of money by the client to the lawyer. It's done charitably. It's, in fact, I think an important obligation for members of the legal profession to engage in some amount of pro bono work. Some states have requirements. Some states have thresholds that they want people to meet. But you have lots and lots of lawyers who provide excellent legal advice and counsel up to and including trial without getting paid any money by the clients they represent. And those conversations are also covered by the attorney-client privilege. So thanks for your question. This question comes in a tweet from Sandy Shriver 9. Is there a chance that many of the people that the grand jury recommended charging in Georgia may still be charged there? Well, that's an interesting and good question, Sandy. And what you're referring to for people who haven't been following it closely is that there was a two-stage grand jury process in Georgia with respect to the indictment that's now pending against Donald Trump and 18 others. There was first convened a special grand jury under Georgia law that would make recommendations for who should be prosecuted, but they would not themselves be issuing an indictment. And then, of course, there was the regular grand jury process by which an indictment was presented to the grand jury and they voted on it. And that contained in the caption, 19 defendants. We have learned from the unsealing of the original preliminary grand jury or special grand jury proceedings that they actually recommended a few dozen more people be charged, including Senator Lindsey Graham and former Georgia Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. As I said on the Cafe Insider this week, whatever you think of the Fannie Willis case, the state case in Georgia, and how sprawling you think it is and what, whatever you think of RICO, the fact that the special grand jury advocated for 40-some-odd people to be in the crosshairs of the prosecutors and Fannie Willis and her team only went with 19 shows, whether you like it or not, that there was some amount of restraint. I also think that given the timing here and a trial potentially coming up soon with respect to at least two defendants and the amount of deliberations taken place so far, in answer to your question, I guess it's possible that some of those other folks will still be charged, but it seems unlikely. This doesn't seem to be the kind of case where there's going to be waves of indictment or continuing superseding indictments that add more and more people. Probably the most important reason I think there's not going to be additional charges against those other people is unlike before, when the public and the press were trying to get unsealed the special grand jury report, at this juncture, after the filing of the indictment against the 19, Fannie Willis did not object, which to me is a very powerful sign that the 19 will remain 19. 
I'll be right back with my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Malcolm Gladwell became a household name about 20 years ago after the publication of his first book, The Tipping Point. His most recent project is the new season of his podcast, Revisionist History. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be invited. It's a delight for me for a lot of reasons. Among them, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. As I sit here in my basement office in Westchester, several of your books, not all of them, but (laughs) several of your books are on my bookshelf. So it's a real treat to get to talk to you. You have a new season of Revisionist History, your podcast, out. Before we get to that, we haven't had a chance to discuss the craft of podcasts yet. What was uh, appealing to you about doing podcasts in the first place? What do you like about podcasting versus the writing of books? Well, it's, um, you know, it's a very different medium. It's a lot more emotional. Um, it's a better storytelling it's, you know, it's a medium. It's hard to be, it's very difficult to talk about numbers and do analytical work on in audio, but it is a lot easier to tell an emotional story. Um, and so I like being able to tell both kinds of stories. But your books are, your books tell stories. They do, but there's, well too. it's very hard to do a podcast about tax policy, <laughs> for example. <laughs> People get lost in the numbers. The minute you do it, if I say a number, it just doesn't have the same meaning as when I, as when I show you a number, where you read a number. But on the flip side, 
there's a kind of um, freedom and openness that comes with audio that you can tell stories and people, I think, are are a lot more accepting and forgiving and open to ideas, to emotions, to being moved, to being... All that's sort of very appealing to someone who has been operating in the world of print his entire life. When someone comes up to you who's a fan in the airport or on the street or at a restaurant, can you tell before they've opened their mouth if they're a fan of your books or a fan of your podcast? No. <laughs> well, my... There's no funny, telltale sign. There's no telltale sign. They'll, you know, the, you, you hear one of three things. You hear, I like your books. And then you say, oh, you should listen to my podcast. You have a podcast. <laughs> or you hear, I get that too. <laughs> yes, you get that too. Or there's a reverse. I like your podcast. Oh, I said, what are you working on now? Another podcast? No, a book. You write books? There's that. <laughs> and then the third yeah. one is where I get confused for someone else. Oh, who do you get confused for? I get confused for uh, Steve Levitt of uh, Freakonomics fame. It's not as bad as it used to be. Interesting. It used to be constant. People would always, they, everyone thought I wrote Freakonomics. And did he have the same thing? I don't know. I've discussed this with him, but he, I don't think so. I think it's because I blurbed it and they put the blurb on the front cover. And so, so people saw Freakonomics <laughs> and they saw my name and they thought, oh, he wrote it. <laughs> but I don't want to, I've never correct people when they say that. I was like, I'm fine with that. It's like, you know, it's like if you write fiction and someone confuses you with Tolstoy, you don't correct them. <laughs> Fair point. All right. So, so with respect to the podcast, how do you choose your topics? Sometimes desperation. Sometimes, but sometimes I get interested in something. You have a deadline, and you have there's a new well, series. Well, this one, coming up. no, no. So this one, this miniseries, which was just coming out on guns. What happened was you would notice because you're a lawyer. I didn't notice. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't realize you could listen to Supreme Court oral arguments. I didn't realize they were taped, and there was you just go to a website and you can hear whatever ones you want. So. This was his great discovery. And this is, this is actually the fun thing about my job. I'm constantly discovering things that I didn't know. So I didn't notice. So then I just started listening to them. And that's where episode, the second episode really comes out of listening to the nutso oral arguments in the Bruin case, the big gun control case. Yeah. The court so we should tell people what, the, what, so before we get into that, we should t- tell people, or you should tell people more specifically, what this miniseries is about. It's about guns. But it, I'm, I'm, well, I was answering, I was going to answer in this roundabout way, because you know I only answer things in a roundabout way. You're asking me <laughs> it's where the beauty the of the ideas, podcast. Yes, right. Yeah. Where the ideas come from. So the idea for this series came because I happened to hear the tape of the oral arguments in this landmark gun control case that the court ruled on, on last year. And I was like, wait, this is strange. What are they talking about? And so I started digging into guns. I hadn't really thought much about guns, never really written about guns. And then I started, I decided I got really interested. I got really interested in trauma surgeons and just started hanging out with trauma surgeons. And then I listened to more Supreme Court oral arguments. And then, you know, it just kind of like grew from there. And then I was, next thing I, then I was reading these criminology papers and I heard about this crazy case in Alabama. And I so I go to Alabama. It all, that's how it works. You know, you start with a little, seed and it takes you in all kinds of yeah directions could you before we get into the new mini series which is fascinating and i've listened to the first few episodes could you explain to people why your podcast is called revisionist history and what the focus is well it's a joke in the sense that the term revisionist history is generally used 
as a form of disparagement, right? Yeah. Someone is engaging in revisionist history means someone's going back and like making up a story um, that isn't true or isn't isn't you know entirely accurate. And I love the idea of taking a term of disparagement and wearing it proudly. That struck me as being funny. Um, and I do like the idea of the premise of the show was that we would just go back and kind of revisit things that people thought they already knew or hadn't heard of before. So it was the loosest possible rubric for me to explore whatever it was that I wanted to explore. And also I was told, someone told me a long time ago that if you put the word history in your title, you'll get one, a, <laughs> yeah. lot, a lot more listeners. <laughs> I should do the stay tuned, history stay tuned. Stay history tuned. Yes, that's right. So what I think is interesting about the premise uh-huh. in a way is that as you say in the podcast and in the preamble that you look at things that are overlooked your contention is often and i think it's true in this miniseries that the original writing of history is the one that's false and the looking back maybe can make it more accurate and bring it into sharper and more correct focus fair yes i think that's very true i also think it's the other premise is that there's a lot of bad history out there I mean, all historians know this. That's why they have, the profession exists. But it is astonishing how much of what we believe um, upon close examination uh, turns out not to be entirely true. That's, that is always the, as a journalist, it took me, I remember when I started the Washington Post years ago, about five years in, I realized, oh, wait a minute. Most of the things that all of us think are true are not. <laughs> It's like, it's astonishing. It's why you, it's why as a journalist, you always try and double or triple check every fact. Cause you realize, you don't do that when you start out. Cause you think, oh, someone told me it must be true. Then you realize about <laughs> five years in, no, no, no. It's all, people are just make stuff up without realizing they're making stuff up. You have to check everything. Wait, so the earth is flat? <laughs> yeah, that's right. As a, but lawyer, only two professions know this, learn this painfully, lawyers and journalists. Everyone else is allowed to kind of debate in the sea of blissful ignorance about about how just how wrong most people are. <laughs> I would like to thank you know my primary care physician <laughs> also. So let's start with this series and the first episode. Tell folks who the individual is that you focus on in episode one, and what possible relevance a figure from the 1600s before the United States was constituted, before there was a constitution, before there was a second amendment, what relevance that individual could have to gun law in the US in modern times? So, uh, good question. And it's, I'm laughing, it's not actually funny. It's deeply problematic. But so I'm a outsider, a lame, I don't know anything about second amendment or anything. So I'm, I'm, I start reading all these second amendment cases and listening to, like I said, oral arguments of the Supreme Court. And I keep hearing this mention of what's called the Knight's case about a guy named John Knight, who is a 17th century merchant in Bristol in England who runs afoul of the law. And he's basically a kind of troublemaker. And he goes into a church and with a gun in his hand and he makes all kinds of stuff to kind of denounce the king for his, uh, who he thinks is too pro-Catholic. And the king files charges against him, and Knight is acquitted. Now, all this is taking place in Bristol, in England, in 17th century. And for some reason, this case keeps popping up among 
defenders of the Second Amendment as deeply relevant to our contemporary understanding of what exactly is or is not permitted by the Second Amendment when it comes to using guns in America. Like Now, the specifics of this, you should listen to the podcast. I urge people to listen. But the broader point is really important here, which is that the defense of the Second Amendment has gotten so hilariously and absurdly arcane they have reached into the 17th, 17th century Bristol to try and find someone to justify the increasingly elaborate and ridiculous arguments that they're making on behalf of gun ownership. And what's even more hilarious is that this history that they have chosen to spotlight as being the basis for their arguments with the Second Amendment turns out to be totally wrong. So I keep hearing this guy's case. So I just call up actual English historians of the period and say, tell me about this dude, John Knight. And they go, they, first of all, they roll their eyes. And they second, the second thing they say is, oh my God, you Americans are so obsessed with this man. And then they tell you the real story of John Knight, which bears no resemblance to the story that's being told in you know, Supreme Court briefs and um, Supreme Court opinions. So it's like, it's this strange, it's what got me going in this series, but just this understanding that like, is this for real? Like, are we really having a debate about guns in this country that hinges on a complete misinterpretation of the solitary act of an obscure 17th century merchant in Bristol, England? Like, that's where we are right now. Did he even have a gun? He had a weapon, which he checks. This is the other fact that doesn't come out in the, in the right-wing interpretation. He actually checks his weapon at the door of the church that he enters. But that fact is completely left out of the conservative... Um, retelling of his story. So they would like to say that he took a weapon into the church and got acquitted, which means that carrying weapons publicly was something that the British were fine with. In fact, consistent with gun control laws of, of that era, he checks his weapon before he enters the church. So, it, I, mean, I mean, this is, it's, it's absurd, right, that we're so, so people understand, you know, more directly, the relevance that some people claim the John Knight case has is that this is a person who was frustrated by a gun regulation and was acquitted. And so, so his vindication is some kind of indication of the history and tradition of the bearing of arms as being something accepted and respected and that is sacrosanct in Anglo-American law. Is that, is that the nut of Correct. it? Correct. That is the nut of it. They have found a single case where a guy happened to be acquitted on a, on a weapons charge in 17th century England and said, look, this means that the English common law heritage, uh, which was the heritage that the founders were you know, deeply respectful of, was one that was fine with people using weapons in public. And this is nonsensical on so many levels, but that's, that's, what they're, that's, what, that's the game they're playing here. Well, the one way in which, I'm not an expert on John Knight, but the one way in which it's nonsensical is the fact of the case makes clear that there was a regulation, right? <laughs> right? Yes, yes. And not only that, the only reason he had a weapon, so this is on, he goes to this church, which is on the outskirts of Bristol. Had he entered Bristol with his weapon, he would have required, been required to give the weapon up because you couldn't, in those years, the weapons ordinances in Bristol were such that you were not allowed to bring a weapon into the city center. But as it as it was, he goes to the church and still checks his weapon because that was the kind of practice when you go to a church. So like 
there's this is actually a story. The John Knight story is actually a story about the prevalence of gun control, weapons nor weapons control norms in 17th century England. All of that is left out of these kinds of contemporary right-wing reinterpretations. And instead, what you get is this kind of misreading of, of the historical record. And in fact, the relevant regulation called the Statute of Northampton comes up in that very recent gun case that you mentioned, Bruin, yeah. about the circumstances under which you can obtain and carry a firearm in New York. Can you explain? Can you explain based on your multiple listenings yeah. to that oral argument, how it comes up and, and how it comes up with a straight face? Well, it comes up because the court, as you know, is obsessed at the moment with this notion that the only way to interpret the meaning of the Constitution is to look for some kind of historical precedent. And their willingness to go way, 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 way back in time to look for those precedents is extraordinary. So the court spends a huge amount of time talking about going back, I think, as far as the 12th or 13th century in England, looking for kind of clues as to what the English were thinking about when they thought about weapons. And so the proponents of gun control said, well, if you want to play this game, we should talk about something called the Statute of Northampton, which is this law that was passed in England in the 12th century, which says 13th century, which says, very clearly says that you can't go around, you can't um, terrify the public by openly carrying weapons in public places. You're not allowed to do that. That's like, you've got a, you know, people who uh, who ride into cities on backs of horses can't be wielding um, any kind of dangerous weapon. So that argument was made, and it's a very compelling one. If the court says, look, we're obsessed with the historical record, and you come out with a statute in English common law, which very clearly establishes strict standards of gun control, it seems like check, right? So the conservatives then responded, aha, but we think that by the 17th century, the English had turned their backs on the statue of Northampton. And why do we think that? Because of this man, John Knight, because John Knight got acquitted, right? John Knight was charged on the statue of Northampton and got acquitted. So it's kind of their response to this. But the whole, all of this starts because people like Alito and Justice Thomas are so obsessed with finding clues to the way we should behave in 2023 um, in the 12th and 13th century. I'll be right back with Malcolm Gladwell after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. 
That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You use a phrase in the podcast, which I've heard other legal experts use as well. I may have used it. When it comes to history and tradition as a foundation for modern case law. And I think the term is cherry picking. Yeah. <laughs> um, other experts you've talked to agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no, there are two two leading scholars of this period in English history that John Knight lived in. And I talked to them both. And both of them, and there's been a considerable amount of work in recent years on this once obscure character because he's now become a kind of important contemporary historical figure. There were these diaries by a kind of prominent journalist of the era that were written in code and had been lying, languishing in an archive for a couple hundred years in London that were decoded. And it turns out this guy, this journalist of the period, had written extensively about John Knight. So all of a sudden, we know a ton about the man. And so when you know the full context of his life and his history and his particular uh, legal entanglement, um, after that incident in the church, you realize that what the conservatives are doing is a complete misrepresentation of history. All of this, though, the broader point is what you were talking about, which is that if you are, as the court is, committed to using history as a guide, you can't just wander through the history books and pluck out individual incidents and say, aha, this proves what I need. You have to do what a historian does, which is you have to look at the big picture and weigh the preponderance of the evidence and make a kind of reasonable judgment. And the argument, one of the strongest arguments that I've heard against the current kind of propensity of the court for these historical um, investigations is they're not historians. They don't behave like historians. They don't know what a historian does. They're writing essentially really bad freshman year term papers and calling them Supreme Court opinions. And by the way, the Bruin case reads like a bad freshman year term paper. I actually, when I had, I didn't do it, but one idea I had for a podcast was to submit the Bruin case to professors of English history and ask them to, <laughs> and ask them to grade it. <laughs> and they would have said, this is ChatGPT, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it seems, I'm going to apologize sincerely in advance for what I'm about to say, but in a way, are these conservative justices when it comes to guns and the focus on history and tradition, are they engaged in revisionist history? I think I think I think they are. I think that's a good use of. <laughs> I find it so, you know, it's so funny to me that you would, that there the the affection that this small group of conservative justices have for kind of going deep into the hundreds and hundreds of years into the historical archive. I just find it so weird. Do you have a, a, a where does it come from? Well, you point out as a close reader of the Bruin case how many pages the majority opinion devotes to different periods of history. 
oh, it's like, I mean, it's pages and pages and pages and pages. They, it takes them, you got to read for like half an hour before they even get to the 19th century, <laughs> let, alone, let alone the 20th or the 21st. It's nuts. It's like, I don't even know. It's like a fetish. It's like a, it's like a weird fe- uh, kind of intellectual fetish where you're hung up on, you know, it's like meeting somebody who's obsessed with, you know, some weird medieval ritual, you know, and has a, a big coat of arms on their wall. You know, it's like that level of kind of, of endeavor. Right, but gets the battle wrong. And, and gets and the, the battle wrong. wrong. Right. Yeah. But you, you say, I don't want to give too much away, but you say at the end of the episode, quote, I realized that I had fallen into the same trap that we've all fallen into in this country when it comes to gun violence. We're talking about the wrong things, telling irrelevant stories. We've all had it with John Knight, end quote. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, because in, then in subsequent episodes, I try and I start to investigate that, um, that notion that we're talking about the wrong things. Um, I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but a, a simple example would be mass shootings in this country, although a insanely tragic occurrence, are a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the overall um, death toll from homicides. I mean, it's probably 2% of the homicides in any given year. And the idea that we spend 75% of our time talking about a problem that represents 2% of the death toll and disproportionately way less time talking about 98% of the problem is weird to me, right? It's like, that's weird. I mean, gun violence in this country is... It's basically kids shooting each other with handguns, with illegal handguns, um, over some kind of dispute, over personal dispute, drugs, wild drunk, wild high. That's what the gun problem is in in this in this country, and it's weird to me that that's not where the focus is. Well, you focus on something in the second episode of the miniseries. It's a particular historical artifact that, for young people listening, will seem as distant in the past as John Knight. And it's the Western TV series, Gunsmoke. Could you remind folks what Gunsmoke was? And by the way, I learned something in particular that I had not appreciated. How much of television in the middle of the last century was Westerns? It's like every show. Oh my God. It's (laughs) like basically all that was on television. Yeah, every show. And these Westerns told a story of which Gunsmoke was the most popular and the most enduring. It's the most popular show on television for Years. I mean, it runs. And they decades. made a lot of episodes. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the bases for the writer's strike is that now series that are streaming on Netflix or, uh, you know, some other streaming service, they make six episodes or eight episodes. I learned from your podcast, separate and apart from what I learned about guns and the history of guns and enforcement of gun laws, is I think Gunsmoke made like 39 episodes yeah. a year. Unbelievable numbers. No TV show does that anymore. And writers could make, and if you're employed by a series, you could make a healthy, you know, decent living because there were 39 episodes to write for as opposed to six. Full-time job. Yeah, yeah. So Gunsmoke and all these other Westerns dominate American mass media in the 50s and 60s. And they tell a story about the Wild West, which is that the Wild West was a lawless place where a man could only defend his family um, if he was willing to own and use a gun, right? That's basically what a Western is, right? The law doesn't really exist. If you want to be safe, you have to be quick on the draw. And and Gunsmoke is the kind of, which takes place in Dodge City, the kind of the legendary epicenter of the Wild Wild West, um, is a story in which, uh, a series in which 
every single episode involves at least one, if not more, people getting uh, killed in gun violence. And as it turns out, this particular rendering of this slice of American history is totally false. Dark City was briefly, for like two years, a dangerous place. And then they got an actual police force and instituted gun control, and the murders stopped. <laughs> so, and in the Wild West in general, in these cattle towns, which are kind of the source of so much of the narrative energy of Westerns, these cattle towns typically had gun control uh, laws in place, which were way stricter than anything in America today, that if you rode into a to Dodge City in 1875, you were required to check your revolver before you entered the town. You had to go to like the police station or something and you handed your gun in and they gave you a little chit, like a coat check. And then you went about your business. And when you left, you picked up your gun, right? So these Westerns have the real history of America's experience with guns completely backwards. And I tell the story of Westerns because I'm trying to account for the fact that why is it that so many people in America continue to believe that the only way a human being, an American, can be safe is if they're carrying a weapon? It just is, where does this idea come from? It's, and the idea, I think the idea comes from Westerns. Now, in, in fairness, unlike with John Knight, the uh, Supreme Court in modern times, in the Bruin case and otherwise, does not cite to gun smoke. No, they don't cite. But, okay. but they're, they implicitly <laughs> do, because in the oral... In the oral arguments in the Bruin case, there's this, I play the tape of it in the episode. There's this insane stretch where Alito and Kavanaugh are taking the, are questioning New York State's lawyer. Barbara Underwood. Barbara Underwood. And they're basically talking about, they're trying to get her to say, wait, wouldn't everyone be a lot safer if people were allowed to carry guns on the subway? There are, there are a lot of armed people uh, on the streets of New York and in the subways late at night right now, aren't there? I don't know that there are a lot of armed people. No? And it's such a crazy... I just couldn't get enough. I could not get enough of this exchange because it's so nuts. Every single person... I lived in New York for 25 years. Every single person who's ever lived in New York knows that your number one nightmare is the idea that someone on the subway, in a subway car with you, has a gun. Right. Well, now imagine everyone has a gun. Yeah, and now imagine everyone has a gun. Firing a gun, it's an, in another episode, I go and I go firing um, assault rifles and revolvers in the woods of North Carolina with this gun enthusiast. And one of the things you learn very quickly when you do that is, and what gun enthusiasts will tell you, is that firing any gun accurately under the best of circumstances is really hard. But for people who aren't familiar with guns, on a moving subway car when they're scared out of their minds to fire a gun accurately would be nearly impossible. Um, and so you're basically, if you want people to carry guns on the subway, you're basically asking for a bloodbath. It's like not, the whole thing is nuts. So that here in the middle of this oral argument, you've got Alito and Kavanaugh basically saying, shouldn't we, isn't, wouldn't it be better if people could go on the A train at, you know, when they come home from work and have their Glock in their back pocket? Like this is, the argument that is only possible by someone to be made by someone who has never ridden the New York City subway, right? That's what this is about. It's like some crazy fantasy cooked up by someone who lives out in the suburbs and grew up watching Gunsmoke. What's always sort of strange about it is you can imagine a universe in which you don't know anything about a particular city or the regulations, and you pose the question, would crime go up or down, would shootings go up or down, or homicides go up or down? if fewer people had guns or if more people had guns, 
but then you have to look at the data and there's just this you know assertion of this theory mm-hmm. of a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun without any look at any data at all right that's that's another it's sort of an analog to the selective cherry picking of history you just make an assertion that you can actually test and 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 see if it bears out and by the way one way it bears out as i'm sure people appreciate there are many many cities in the world outside of america where gun ownership is very low and crime also is very low and you also point out and i thank you for this that this focus on the new york city subways as being kind of like a violent wild west you point out and defend my city as being safer than most other cities in america yeah yeah the idea that i mean ron DeSantis gets away with claiming that new york city is a kind of hotbed of is gomorrah you know yeah yeah meanwhile levels of gun violence in and violent crime in Florida are way higher than New York State. Like Jacksonville. I mean, Jacksonville is one of the most dangerous places in America. Like, I don't understand how, I don't understand how he gets away with it. It's like so plainly ridiculous. You could, to one minute on Google will tell you that that's a lie. And yeah, he just goes and sort of, I don't know, it's, it's not, the whole thing's nuts. What are some other things you, you focus on in the, in the series? And I want to get to some other issues with you. Well, I get really, I'm really interested in, I have two episodes where I talk a lot about trauma surgery and and ask this question. You know, the, the homicide rate at any given time is a function of two things. One is the underlying level of violence, right? And two is how good medical care is. So you can imagine a universe where if everyone is, everyone who is shot doesn't get any health care at all, the homicide rate will be really high, right? But if, on the contrary, everyone who's shot is shot outside the front door of New York Presbyterian's uh, trauma center, the homicide rate would be really low because it would save most of the lives. So the question that I was trying to figure out is, which of those two things is more important in explaining the decline in violent crime in America over the last 25 years? Is the level of violence down or is the, is the level of trauma care for gunshot victims way, way better. And that's a, turns out to be a really, really interesting question to try and get the answer to. You know, it's, it's funny. It reminds me of something that a, a senior prosecutor told me when I was a junior prosecutor about the theory of jury selection mm-hmm. for prosecutors, which was some version of, not everyone agrees with this, and some people might take offense at this, but the idea that there are certain professions that have people who are going to be, by nature, empathetic, sympathetic, forgiving and they're not the best people to have on your jury because they might be biased in favor of forgiveness right and your job is to prove the guilt of somebody and one of those professions was nurse right people in in a helping profession with the except this person said with one exception you get a nurse in the jury pool and on your jury in a gun case and that's a really good juror for you to have particularly if it's an emergency care nurse because they've seen what guns do to people uh, and to human bodies. Yeah. yeah, That's super interesting. What's the RFK episode about? Well, that's the same episode. So I, I start with the story. I found a neurosurgeon who wrote this really brilliant paper trying to imagine what would have happened to RFK had he been assassinated today. How would his medical care have been different? Would he have survived? And... Uh, so I begin with that and sort of... But that's a way into this broader question of, uh, what does it mean that huge numbers of people who would be dead, 
30 years ago are now alive in the wake of, uh, of gun violence. And uh, what is that, how has that changed the way we argue, argue about guns? I mean, did doctors, the, the incredible fact, someone actually tried to calculate, if you keep levels of 1960s healthcare constant, then the homicide rate today would be something like three or four times higher. So we'd be looking at 75 to 80,000 homicide deaths in this country a year. And if that were the case, I suspect we would have a very different argument about, about guns. Is the better statistic or metric that we should focus on shootings rather than homicides? Yes. Because of this healthcare delta? Yeah. But of course, we don't measure shootings. So I found the only, the only way you can measure shootings is if criminologists, I found one in, there's a bunch of them enterprising criminologists around the country in Indian, Indianapolis, I think in Chicago, and who actually go and get the data directly from the police department and basically tabulate it themselves. But they would argue, yeah, what you really should be measuring is gunshots that hit a body. That's what you should be measuring. And that removes the kind of healthcare um, bias from the occasion. And that will tell you whether your levels of violence are going up or down. Do you have a favorite book of your own? Of my own? Yeah. Or do you love all your children and books equally? I do not love them all equally, but I'm afraid to say which one I dislike the most. <laughs> so I didn't ask that. I saved you. I said, which one did you like the <laughs> most? <laughs> is, is, there, is there one you like the most? And if so, what is it? Well, I think I like the Bomber Mafia the most because it's the least like the others. And it's just a, it's just a single narrative. Is it also that you've had less time... To reflect on... To reflect, because it's the most... I believe it's your most recent book. It is my most recent. Um, maybe. No, no, maybe that's it. The real answer is I like... The one I like the best is the one I'm working on at the moment. It's always... That's always the case. The one you're working on at that particular moment is your favorite. So I'm not going to ask you if this next book is your least favorite or not, but at least it's a book that you have said you'd like to revise a little bit. And that's The Tipping Point, which you wrote 23 years ago. And you talked a bit favorably about broken windows theory, and that's controversial. And it goes to this issue of crime management as well. And you said a decade ago, quote, I think I was too in love with the broken windows notion, but I think I was so enamored by the metaphorical simplicity of that idea that I overstated its importance, end quote. So now it's been another 10 years, and there's been a lot of debate about this in the last three or four years in the US. What do you make of that? Good question. Um, I'm actually revising the tipping point as we speak, so it's on my mind. Um, I would say that uh, yes, my I I think what I did is I misinterpreted the parts of the broken windows theory that are valid, and the way I confused that with the way it was used by certain police departments around the country. So there is a kernel of broken windows theory which is has been subsequently richly supported by empirical research. And that is the most literal version of it. So there's been this wonderful work in Philadelphia where they literally fix broken windows. They go to vacant lots, they clean them up, they renovate houses, they you know paint houses that need paint. And what they've shown is that when you fix up a dilapidated block, the crime rates fall, and not by a little, by a lot. So in that sense, broken windows that idea that had been floated back then has been validated by empirical work and is probably a hugely underused crime-fighting tool. Improving the circumstances of people's environment seems to have a profoundly deterrent effect on criminal activity. 
what but what I I wasn't talking about that in giving point. I got enamored with the use of that theory to justify a certain kind of aggressive policing. And I think that I think turned out to be do more harm than good. But subs in subsequent books, I sort of returned to this question of what does what does appropriately aggressive policing look like? Um, and I think I got a better, if you read my discussion of crime in and policing in Talking to Strangers, for example, uh, where I talk about hotspot policing, that's a much more, there I think we begin, we're beginning to get a better understanding of, you. if you want to use police to crack down on relatively small infractions in order to sort of send a message, you have to use that kind of power incredibly selectively and with extraordinary discretion and under very kind of well-controlled circumstances. It cannot be a broad brush. And I think what you saw in many American cities was the indiscriminate use of that style of policing, and that was deeply problematic. And you, you said at the beginning of this question that you're going back and revising the book. Is there a new version? There will be. And it'll be Tipping Point Part 2. And is that because there's an anniversary coming up or is that because yes. you wanted to address this point? No, actually, I don't even think I'm going to address this book in the in round two. Um, okay. I, but I there is a new version that's m much more about um, epidemics. I got really interested in the opioid epidemic and in, um, by the way, another subject, the most under-discussed subject in contemporary American life is the opioid crisis. And I, I was guilty, as guilty as this as, as anyone, I never thought about it, talked about it much for years and years and years. We're now up to 100,000 people in America dying every year from drug overdoses. How is this not the absolute top of everyone's public policy agenda? It, it, it's baffling to me. Like, it's just the strangest thing in the world. 100,000 people a year? Like, we even had a war that, that had that many casualties since, since the Second World War, right? It's crazy. But anyway, so I, those those are the kinds of things. Well, how do you? Well, how do you? So let's pause on that. How do you explain that? I mean, I, I started to talk about it a lot towards the end of my tenure as U.S. Attorney when we weren't anywhere near a hundred thousand. Yeah, but we got to the point where I think it was more than gun deaths and auto deaths combined, which is and now you know, it's just nuts, huge. And we would do forums about it, and we would talk about you know I've done an episode on the opioid crisis, but I think you're right that. Given the magnitude of the of the problem, it's not matched with the same amount of discussion. Do you have an explanation? A good explanation? No. Nor any. <laughs> I don't. The explanation. No, I just think it's because I just think that it's further evidence of how disconnected, kind of the conversations we have as a society are from our actual problems. I mean, it would be one thing if it if it was a feature of every industrialized country, and then we could say, well, happens everywhere you know, nothing much we can do about it. So we'll go on with our lives. It's like, we don't talk a lot about the flu and the flu takes out whatever, 20,000 people a year. So it's that kind of, but that's not what it is at all. There are huge parts of the world that have no opioid crisis. There's no opioid crisis in Italy or Portugal or Spain, or there's a greatly diminished one in France. And I mean, it's like the Canadian one is probably the closest to America. And even that one is a fraction of the size. This is a homegrown, American problem. So you would think it would be, it would obsess us. So, but I, I do not, I'm completely baffled as to why it's not top of mind. Well, I think that's a good topic for a miniseries. It is. It, it, yes, yes, it is. And well, or, 
or a book, as it turns out, that, or a book that I'm working on. I want to ask you about another book that I loved of yours called Blink. Could you remind people or tell them for the first time what the basic premise of Blink is? Well, Blink was a book about that was interested in exploring how much influence our first impressions have, both for good and ill. Although <laughs> the book was one of those curious cases where when people read that book, they thought that I was maintaining that you should always trust your instincts. And I thought I wrote a book that was about how your instincts betray you most of the time. So this is one of those cases where either I failed or my readers failed, probably the former. Um, but uh, I was just interested in just how much of the way we make sense of the world is based on these snap judgments. That struck me as being amazing and kind of worthy of consideration. In a nod to you, I, I cite your book, or used to cite your book, among other things that I cited, when I would give to junior prosecutors in the Southern District of New York the lecture on opening statements and how powerful it was and how important it is in some ways more than the summation because it's the first impression. Yeah. And also how quickly a jury is going to sort of, you know, look at the prosecutor who approaches the lectern and make a judgment very, very quickly about that person's authenticity, credibility, maturity, and everything else as, you know, a lesson to them to make sure that they're buttoned up and prepared right from the outset. Yeah. Is that, is that a fair thing for me to tell them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the data on, um, you know, if you ask a class of students to do a teacher evaluation based on the first, you know, 15 seconds of their teacher's appearance in their classroom, their evaluations of their professor are the same as they are at the end of the year. So it's like, they don't update it. You, they form an impression instantly of this dude who's teaching them and they don't update it. They, that's it. Right. They're done. Now, now, is that because they're so good at making the initial assessment? No. It doesn't need to be updated or they're just biased by their first impression? No. Some, some people might be good at their first impression. No, it's just that the things that we use as the basis for those kinds of impressions are generated instantly and are based on the kinds of things you pick up right away. So uh, how they're dressed and how they look and how they sound and how they walk and all those kinds of things really, 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 really matter. And the nuances of their thinking don't, you know, it's not, there's just not a lot of room in our first impressions for, for consideration of, of, of these kind of more subtle things, more, more subtle and longer term characteristics. Are you revisiting that book as well? No, I, I, I think, Preet, <laughs> time's running out. I'm 60. I don't have time to, I don't have time to like, you know, rewrite everything. Decades, ever. you've got decades to go. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question that I ask many of the guests on the show because it's the, the issue that we're focusing on, sometimes to the exclusion of many, many other things, and that is AI, artificial intelligence. Do you have a view about, apart from how it'll affect the legal profession, of how it might affect journalism, how it might affect academics, how it might affect our humanity generally? Yeah. Well, do I know more about this than the average person? No. Um, so my view is, I start by saying my view is not worth a lot, but I, I guess I would say that looking at it from the perspective of North America may be misleading, that imagine a farmer in or, a, or a business person in a, in a relatively impoverished part of the world who all of a sudden gets access to the same level of uh, high quality advice that we do as a matter of course, just by looking on their phone. That's kind of great, right? 
I mean, the difference between a farmer who can be productive and a farmer who's struggling to get by is very often access to a set of some knowledge about farming that's highly specialized and expensive. Well, what if we made it free, essentially? Isn't that a really, really, really good thing? We've suddenly made somebody a lot smarter. From that perspective, how much better is healthcare in an underserved part of the world if you have access to AI? It's way better, right? So that probably, that fact, I know there's all kinds of downsides, but that upside seems to me so enormous that it should swamp every other consideration. So you're more optimistic than pessimistic? Yes. I mean, I, I with the exception of the existential risk to all of humanity. The, the destruction of all of us. Yes. That aside, once you put that aside, I, I am an optimist, yes. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for being on the show. This was really fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bree. My conversation with Malcolm Gladwell continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we discuss what it means to be theory-rich. Parents raising their children are, you know, you come home, you're exhausted, you're overworked, you put your kid to bed, you observe behavioral patterns in your child, you don't have any opportunity to compare that child against a thousand other similarly situated children and generate a theory about what effective parenting looks like, right? How would, when would you do that? To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to mention two stories of justice that have an interesting connection. One of the first stories that I tell in my book, Doing Justice, concerns the wrongful conviction and eventual exoneration of a man named Eric Glisson and several others. In brief, Eric Glisson is from Soundview in the Bronx. In 1995, Glisson was charged with the murder of a cab driver named Baith Diop, who was shot around the corner from Eric's apartment. The NYPD also arrested five other people. They became known as the Bronx Six. Glisson received a prison sentence of 25 years to life. Fast forward to 2012. Glisson had spent almost two decades at Sing Sing Prison. Glisson wrote to SDNY, professing his innocence. He said he was in prison for a crime he had not committed. Someone forwarded his message to one of our best investigators, John O'Malley. John O'Malley was a former NYPD homicide detective, and he knew Bronx gang life like the back of his hand. By a stroke of wild luck, John remembered that a witness he had flipped a decade earlier had also confessed to murdering a cab driver. John brought in Margaret Garnett, then the chief of the Violent Crimes Unit in our office, and the two tracked down the witness who had previously confessed to O'Malley. It took some time, but 17 years after he went to prison, Glisson and other members of the Bronx Six were exonerated and set free. Why am I mentioning this story? Bear with me. My friend and former colleague, Westchester County District Attorney Mimi Roca, recently established a conviction review unit in her office. Just last week, D.A. Roca announced that this unit had officially exonerated a man named Leonard Mack. Leonard was a Vietnam veteran who was convicted in 1976 of raping a teenage girl at gunpoint in the town of Greenberg, New York. Greenberg police had picked up Mack, a black man who was driving through the predominantly white neighborhood where the rape occurred, and disregarded his alibi. He was the only black man put in a police lineup, 
and officers allegedly used aggressive tactics, including changing Mac's clothes, to coerce victim identification. Mac served seven and a half years in prison for the crime, and he has carried the weight of his wrongful conviction for most of his life. Now Roker's office, with the help of the Innocence Project, has been able to use new DNA data to conclusively determine that Mac had nothing to do with the crime. A habitual sex offender even confessed not long ago. So on September 5th, his 72nd birthday, Mac's conviction was vacated. This is believed to be the oldest wrongful conviction case ever to be overturned by DNA evidence. As Mac said after walking out of the Westchester County Courthouse, quote, Now the truth has come to light, and I can finally breathe. I am finally free. End quote. Justice can have a way of perpetuating itself across generations. Mac's exoneration was accomplished in part by the efforts of a Greenberg Police Department detective by the name of Daniel O'Malley, who happens to be the son of John O'Malley, the SDNY investigator responsible for Eric Glisson's exoneration. The knack for setting things right, it seems, is an O'Malley family tradition. Congratulations to Leonard Mack. I also want to commend Detective O'Malley, District Attorney Roca, and everyone else who has helped to exonerate wrongly convicted individuals. Let's all aspire to build a legacy of writing and justice, even against all odds. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Malcolm Gladwell. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is Noah Ozilai, David Kurlander, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, 
perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.